Welcome to Parenting Bites. This is Rebecca Levy of Kids Views. I'm here today with Amy Oztan of Amy Ever After. Hi. And just you, Amy. Just me. <laughs> it's just us. Andrea is off on assignment. Um, it's just you and me today, Amy. So, <laughs> or you and I, I should say, as I always correct my daughters. No, isn't it you um, and me? Because you would no, say it's just me. It's just I is actually correct. Oh my God, I would never say that. It is I. You should say it is I, not it is me. Oh, that sounds so tight ass. (laughs) Well, that's why you don't say it because it's weird. Oh, Because then it just sounds like you're being pretentious and creepy, even though it's correct. I am positive that I've corrected people the other way, like that I've corrected them to the incorrect form. No, I can't remember what it's called. I'm sure there's some grammar nerd out there, but it's still the subject. It's like the subject referring back to itself rather than an object. All right. I'm just going to keep saying it the incorrect way because it sounds better. (laughs) It does sound better. It sounds so creepy to say. (laughs) It's just you and I. Um, So today on the show, (laughs) I'm totally distracted by grammar. Oh, how Um, appropriate. (laughs) uh, Today on the show, we have a really interesting show. Um, We have the author, speaker, thought leader, uh, Nir Ayel coming on today to talk about his book, Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. And it's a really fascinating conversation about how technology is getting blamed for all of our distraction and distractibility and lack of face-to-face communication, but how maybe instead it's a symptom Hmm. (laughs) of our indistractability um, or distractibility, I guess. Trying to build indistractability is what we're trying to do. So this is a really crazy conversation. Amy gets very personal. (laughs) Listen, you know that I just do this podcast for selfish reasons so that, you know, you can do research for college for my kids and I can get therapy. That's, That's why I do this. It all works. But we hope you enjoy this conversation. It's really fascinating. And we loved it. And we actually learned so much, right? I love when we have guests on where we learn so much. I I did. And I actually, well, you'll find out I committed to kind of being a guinea pig and testing it out on myself. There you go. So we will be right back with our conversation with Nir. We are back with our guest, Nir Ayal. He is an author, speaker, and thought leader. And for our purposes today, also a dad, (laughs) an 11-year-old girl. Thanks for joining us today, Nir. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. We were so excited when we learned about your book, Indistractable, because we are constantly fighting on this show um, with, I want to say, I shouldn't say fighting. I should say discussing with other experts who really want to tell us how bad technology is, Mm. um, how it's just destroying this generation of kids, how it's causing anxiety and all these things. Um, And it was really nice to hear from someone who had a more positive point of view on how to take control of that rather than making it seem like it's this uncontrollable thing that is now going to just overwhelm all of us. Yeah, yeah. I think I think what I'd like to slightly revise is not necessarily say that I'm I'm giving you a positive perspective. Let me say that I'm giving you a nuanced perspective. <laughs> I, I I don't think that what we see today uh, with overuse of technology is the root cause of the problem. I think that's the case that I make in my book that the evidence reveals that overuse of technology is a symptom of something else going on. 
And if we don't address the, the deeper disease and just try and treat the symptoms, we're not actually accomplishing very much. And so clearly, you know, some kids do overuse technology. That's pretty clear. And for some, it does have some deleterious effects. The question is, why do they overuse? And what's a more realistic and nuanced perspective that we can all apply to our lives? Because look, the, the reality is we don't want to raise technophobic kids, mm-hmm. right? We need kids to to be comfortable around uh, these technologies. Their, their livelihoods in the future depend on them being comfortable with these technologies. So the, the real idea here is how do we get the best out of these technologies without letting them get the best of us? So let's talk about that a little bit, because I think there are a lot of myths around, you know, smartphone use and screen time and mental health. Um, you know, I feel like every week there's a new study about mm-hmm. how, in, how anxiety as an epidemic is happening because of social media, because of phone use. Um, and there's obviously, for those of us with teenagers, there you can see this anecdotal um, you know, thing that happens when your kids are feeling left out or seeing what's going on in social media and how it starts to impact their behavior. But what are the sort of truths there and the myths around that? Yeah. So I think that the, what we really need to ask ourselves, for, first of all, let's do a, a, a pulse check on what's really going on. Because the fact of the matter is that the, the media and many people in this, in the, the, the who, who report on this kind of stuff, uh, you know, they are in the same exact business as Facebook, that the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Atlantic, they all make money the same way as Facebook does. They sell your attention. They make money on advertising. And of course, nobody clicks on a, on a link to an article that says tech use. It's complicated, right? right. <laughs> what you want is the headline, the, the clickbaity headline that says technology use is hijacking your brain. Technology use is doing this to your kids. It's addicting your kids. It's horrible. It's linked to this and that. That's the kind of stuff that people click on. But when you actually look at the studies that the reporters are, are citing, it's just mind-boggling the gap between what is really in these studies and what the, the headlines say that most of these studies, in fact, are correlative studies. Something like 98% of these studies are correlative, meaning that there is a correlation between excessive use of technology and some some forms of of decreased well-being, like uh, increased signs of depression or uh, self-reported measures of psychological well-being. But we have to understand that, of course, this is a correlation, not causation. We don't know which way the direction of the relationship is flowing, that it is just as likely to say that people who are suffering from depression, depressive symptoms are turning to excessive use of technology to relieve that discomfort. We know for a fact that people suffering from clinical depression check email more. Right? There's actually tools on college campuses that can help pinpoint whether a student might be suffering from depression based on how often they check email. Uh, and so we, we know, but, but the, the relationship is, is, is a different direction. It's not that the email is causing you to get depressed. It's that people who suffer from depression, they experience what we call negative valence states. They feel bad more frequently than the rest of the population. And so they're turning to something for relief. So what we do know, what, what every parent should take some comfort in knowing is that we know that two hours or less of extracurricular age-appropriate screen time has no deleterious effects. Not one study has shown that two hours or less, as long as it's age-appropriate, when I say age-appropriate, that goes to any form of media. You know, I have an 11-year-old little girl. I wouldn't take her to the library and just let her read any book. There's a lot of books an 11-year-old is not ready for. So all content has to be age-appropriate. But 
as long as that content is age appropriate, two hours or less uh, for, for teenagers has not been shown to have any negative effects. In fact, studies show that one hour or less seems to have seems to be worse than around two hours <laughs> that that kids actually report lower sense of well-being if they don't have any tech use so there it's it's a u-shape so you get the best benefit is 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 when you have moderate use where you start to see some some correlation with depressive symptoms and other uh, other problems is really with the excessive use five six seven hours a day of of this screen time and then, of course, the question is, well, look, you know, is someone who's using any media for five, six hours a day, it, it, what's going on there, right? If, if somebody was watching TV for five hours a day, if somebody was, was even reading you know, Harry Potter for five hours a day, that, that's a problem. There's something else going on there. And so what we need to do is to ask a more nuanced question here, which is, why do kids overuse technology? And I think the, the icky sticky truth that we parents don't like to admit is that it's never quite so simple as the thing we like to blame. And the, and the, 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 the metaphor I like to use here is the sugar high. We all know as parents that if you give your kid sugar, they go crazy, right? Doesn't everybody know this? Well, it turns out it's not true. And I know a lot of people's heads are exploding right now because we've all observed how our kids act crazy when they eat too much sugar, right? They get the sugar high and they run around like crazy and they act like mad. I'm telling you, meta-studies, meaning studies of studies, have found conclusively that the sugar high does not exist except in parents, meaning parents have been observed when their children were given a placebo, meaning they were given something that was not sugar, an inert substance, and yet their parents of these children were told the kids were given sugar. The parents act crazy. <laughs> they have been documented to chase their kids around and berate their kids and criticize their kids and claim their kid is acting crazy when in fact no such thing is occurring. It's the parent acting this way. And of course we have seen this throughout the history of child rearing that every successive generation has its boogeyman. Right? When I was a kid, we weren't talking about video games when, and, and screens. We're talking about, you know, the television was supposed to be ruining all our brains. That cable television was apparently the, the worst thing ever. And before that, it was rap music and rock and roll music and the comic books. I mean, literally, if you look at the Senate testimony around in the 1950s around comic books, it is verbatim what people are saying today about screen time, word for word. But of course, it's the same problem of correlation is not the same as causation, that the kids who were over-reading comic books, we're reading it for the same reasons that kids today overuse technology, which is that they are deficient in what we call psychological nutrients. That we know that for our bodies, we have these three macronutrients of protein, carbohydrates, and fat. And it turns out that the, the, psychologically, the psychological literature re reveals that there are three psychological nutrients that we all need. And I believe, and I think I make a pretty, uh, pretty uh, conclusive uh, show of evidence in this in, in the book, is that our children today are deficient in these three psychological nutrients. And by the way, these, these psychological nutrients, this is not my research. This is 40, 50-year-old research. Every psychologist on the face of the earth has heard of this. It's called self-determination theory. It's the most widely theory of human motivation, uh, most widely accepted and studied th theory of human motivation. It's been around for decades. And what this theory says is, it's called the needs displacement hypothesis, Then, when we don't get what we need in the real world, we look for what we're missing in the virtual world. 
And I think that is exactly what's happening to our kids today. So it's not about saying you need to cut down on your screen time. It's about figuring out what they're not getting and then hoping that that has a natural effect on their screen time. Right. That, that if we don't understand the root cause of the problem, and, and let me just kind of explain for a moment what, what is, I think, the root cause of the problem. What are we missing? So psychologists tell us that according to self-determination theory, every human being on the face of the earth needs three things for psychological flourishing and well-being. We need competency, autonomy, and relatedness. So let's, let's take a look at how our kids are experiencing this deficiency in, in their lives. So competency. One thing that we see along with the rise of the use of cell phones in this country, along with that around 2007, 2008, we also see a rise in standardized testing, right? No child left behind, teaching towards the test. And, and today it is remarkable how many times a year, starting in kindergarten, children are subjected to these standardized tests. It's not just the standardized tests. It's also that the teachers are teaching towards these tests with Common Core, etc. So what we have is a subset of children who are told repeatedly they are not competent. They can't cut it. And so what do you do when you don't feel competency, this core human need we all need for our psychological well-being? Well, the gaming companies make you feel incredibly competent, right? If you play Minecraft, oh boy, you feel in control. You are competent. Here's something you are really good at. So that's where they go to get what they're missing. Now let's talk about autonomy. Autonomy is, is necessary for adults and children. Everyone needs the sense of freedom, control over their life. But this is the most regulated generation in history. Studies have found that the work of Peter Gray has found that the average American child today has 10 times as many restrictions placed on them as the average adult, twice as many as an incarcerated felon. There are only two places in society where you can tell people where to go, what to think, how to dress, who to be friends with, what to eat, and that's school and prison. And so is it any surprise when our kids come home from school, they just want to feel freedom. They just want to make their own decisions and decide for themselves where they want to go. But today, they can't do that. Why? Because if, you're, if your family has money, well, then you send them to Kumon and test prep and Mandarin and swimming and, and all these activities. And so, again, they, they're continued to be regimented. Or if your family is, doesn't have means, well, then we keep our kids indoors. Why? Because the media has convinced us that our kids are constantly in danger, right? We've all heard this, stranger danger. But in fact, nothing could be further from the truth. This is the safest time in American history to be a child. And so we keep kids indoors. They don't have the agency, the freedom to do what they want to do. So what do we expect them to do? Of course, they're going to go online if they don't have other options. And then the third, the, the third factor, relatedness, I think is the most pressing problem. Because what we see today is that there is an utter collapse in the amount of time that children have for what we call free play. Free play is when kids can be kids without the gaze of coaches and teachers and parents, where they can play with their peers in not in, in with, without a structure, but just to interact socially. And it turns out that if there's one thing, one gift that you can give your child to improve their psychological well-being, it's to let them play. Let them play with their friends. Because play is where we learn our place in the world. It's one thing if a coach or a teacher or a parent tells you how to behave. It's a whole nother story when one of your friends says, hey, if you, stop, if you don't stop acting like a jerk, I'm not going to play with you. 
right? We need that type of, of, of socialization, but of course, kids don't have that time anymore. Because of how regimented their lives have become, they don't have that time for free play. Studies have found that it is at a record low, the amount of time that kids have for free play. When I was a kid, the neighborhoods of this country used to sing with the sound of children playing. And you don't hear that anymore, unfortunately. So, so where do kids go? Where do kids go to socialize? Well, if they can't do it in the real world, guess what? They go to Instagram and TikTok and Snapchat and Fortnite. I mean, that's what these experiences are really about. They just want to be with their friends, for God's sakes. And we don't allow them that time in the real world, so they get it in the online world. It's so interesting to me because when my daughters were in elementary school, I saw the rise of organized recess. <laughs> <laughs> um, and even our PTA is being asked to pay to bring companies in during recess to have organized games because mm. parents were afraid that if they didn't have that, there would be bullying. Because what a lot of parents start to see free play as <laughs> was just time for kids to be kids, which also meant the, the you know bullying and picking on kids and kids being excluded from playing with kids and so the solution was let's bring in kickball you know double dot whatever it is but these organized companies and there's a million of them now mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. that have just you know whatever they do they come in and, and they teach kids supposedly even how to play street games like kids that you know things that kids normally knew how to play you just <laughs> learn you know you'd learn stickball from your older sibling right, right, um, right. and now these adults come in and teach you double dutch or whatever but it was a very contentious thing because it was exactly what you're saying where people are like they literally get 30 minutes of recess <laughs> can't we just let them climb on the jungle gym, go down the slide, like whatever. And it, parents really wanted organization and coaches coming in. Right. Right. How do you fight that? Well, I think one thing we do is we make sure that, you know, what, what, what happens in school is more difficult to change, but what happens out of school, we do have much more purview over. And I, I think that's something that, that parents need to get together. And, and the nice thing is you don't have to change your entire school system to do this. Find, a couple other parents who believe in this philosophy of free play, of allowing your child to have unstructured playtime, and book that time in your schedule just like you would book the swimming lessons and the soccer practice and the test prep. Book time in your weekly schedule to give your child the greatest gift you could ever give them for their psychological well-being, which is time to be with their friends. That time can be scheduled. And then let them actually play because what I would see over and over again on the playground when my kids were younger is that if there were the teeniest, tiniest dispute, parents would step in immediately yes. to stop the kids and the kids <laughs> never got a chance to figure it out. So true. Yeah. So there is also a philosophy of how we let our kids play because remember, free play is defined as letting kids interact with each other without the guidance of parents, coaches, and teachers. And part of it is, you know, the rule that we set in our household when we when we take our daughter out and, and, and you know, even, by the way, this is also a great opportunity to model what adult friendships look like. So one ritual that we have is that every two weeks we have a gathering of friends. Many of them, you know, they're, they're all couples and they many of them have children themselves. And the rule is kids can go play. They can join the adult conversation if they'd like, but they can't interrupt. They can observe, but they can't interrupt. And they can't interrupt unless someone's bleeding. <laughs> right. <laughs> so if someone's bleeding, please interrupt. <laughs> but short of that, I think you can figure it out on your own. 
Well, it's also crazy. I mean, I just remember because we live in the city. So like we're in an apartment, you know, we didn't have, we had stuff, but not so much stuff, but we would go to friends or relatives in the suburbs where they would have a basement that looked like Toys R Us. <laughs> and my girls would get there and be like, what is going on? They have like three play kitchens and a Barbie house. And a th- like, it was insane. And the kids who lived there just wanted to do something on a screen. <laughs> Yeah, interesting. Even you know? though they had a bajillion toys, right? It, like insane. I mean, it was truly like you couldn't get your head around it, but it was almost like there was so much stuff yeah. to facilitate playing that it was too much. Like it wasn't enough to their imagination. Like instead of playing dress up in like your mom's old clothes and your grandma's old hats, it was like the dress up trunk, right? That had every preordained uniform and costume. Like even that stuff became much more regimented in a lot of ways. Yeah, interesting. So there, I have a friend uh, by the name of James Wallman who wrote a book called Stuffication. And stuffication is exactly what you just what you just alluded to, right? We have so much stuff that in order to escape this fl- overflow, this flood of stuff in our house, we look for something much simpler and we just, you know, we interact with our screens as opposed to all this crap in, <laughs> that's clogging up our house. And 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 so, you know, I think this is where actually we can engage with a few new customs and norms around how to use technology to kind of uh, encourage children uh, to, to, to play without devices. And part of it starts with a conversation. I think a, a mistake that a lot of parents make is that they come to their children uh, knowing best, right? I'm going to tell you, you have to stop using your phone because I say so, as opposed to, you know, what does that do? Well, that decreases their sense of agency and control, right? When, when we know that, that autonomy is one of these three pillars of psychological well-being, what happens when you force a kid to do what you want them to do when it comes to tech use? Well, you're basically, you know, you're, you're manifesting a, a, a cheater, right? You're, you're, you're incentivizing uh, them to find ways around your rules. So what are they going to do when they're at a friend's house? What are they going to do, you know, more importantly, when they leave the house? Because our goal, I think, as parents is not to raise children. Our goal as parents is to raise future adults. So we want them to learn this skill set of becoming indistractable. I mean, if you think the world is distracting now, just wait a few years. It's only yeah. going to become more potentially distracting. So we have got to teach our kids how to become indistractable. And that starts with a conversation. So, you know, I think the metaphor here is a swimming pool. Swimming pools kill thousands of children. And yet we wouldn't never allow our kids to learn how to swim. We would teach them, right? When they're ready, when it's age appropriate, we teach them how to navigate the waters. We don't just, you know, throw them in the water and say, well, if you drown, you drown. That's your problem. And I think that's how, that, that's what the same conversation we need to have with, with technology. It's about teaching them the ropes. Part of it is starting with a conversation around, look, the, the cost of technology, it's not melting your brain it's not addicting everyone. It's not evil. Again, we don't want to create technophobic children. That doesn't serve them or us. What we want to do is to have a conversation with them and say, look, the cost of screen time is an opportunity cost. It's the opportunity to play with your friends. It's the opportunity to be with mommy and daddy. It's the opportunity to, to do other things like your homework or other things that you need to do in your life. So we need to start by asking them and putting them in control, how much screen time do you want. And and so this is a question we asked my daughter when she was just five years old. We came to her and, and by the way, you know, she was among this first generation that had access to iPads. And I remember one of the things that she used to scream at the top of her lungs when she was three years old was iPad time, iPad time, iPad time. And it drove <laughs> us crazy. And so we had this conversation when she was old enough. We sat down with her and we said, look, honey, 
given the cost of screen time, given that it comes at the price of doing other things, how much time do you want to spend with, with the iPad? And I thought she was going to say all day, but that's not what she said. She kind of looked at me and she thought, hmm, okay, here's my opportunity to get one over on dad. And she said two episodes, meaning two Netflix episodes. Well, two Netflix episodes, that's about 45 minutes. That's well under the two-hour uh, cap that, that people, you know, that studies show has no deleterious effects. So I said, fine, no problem. You can have 45 minutes of screen time. But here's the thing. How do I know that you are the one responsible for how much time you spend on the screen? How will you regulate yourself? And I, I really didn't know the answer to this. So I wanted to leave it in her hands. And here's what she came up with. She said, look, you know that microwave that we have? We used to have this microwave that was below the countertop and she could reach it very easily and it had a timer on it. And she said, I'll, I'll type in 45 minutes on the timer because she saw us using it in the past. And when it rings, I'll stop. And we said, great. And as long as we see you abiding by the rule you yourself set, that's fine. Today, you know, now she's 11 years old. Today, she doesn't use a microwave. She uses tech to help regulate her tech use. She says, Amazon, or she says, Alexa, set the, set the timer for 45 minutes. Or she uses Apple Screen Time, these tools that come built into the devices, to help her regulate herself. Because what I want to teach her is the macro skill of being able to turn off these potential distractions so that she can do other things in her life. That's an important skill set that I wanted her to learn. That's so smart, because I, I feel like with all these kids who have hard limits on what they can do, once they're off on their own and they have nobody telling them it's time to stop, they're just not going to be able to stop at all. Yeah. And, and frankly, you know, we did this too. Right? I remember when I went to college, uh, you know, there, there was almost nobody with a cell phone. But, oh boy, the, the kids who didn't have any exposure to other things that teenagers do in their spare time, like alcohol or other, other things that are, are potentially damaging, boy, uh, the, the, the kids who were the most strictly regulated, those are the ones who went crazy in college, mm -hmm. right? Because they hadn't had any practice with self-regulation. But it's interesting, you know, my my daughters are 17, so it's a little different. And I will say that one of my daughters takes Instagram off her phone every other month. And then she'll keep it off for a while and she'll kind of put it back on. She In Snapchat, she just took off. But what happens is that's how they communicate. Mm -hmm. So she then, even if she doesn't want Snapchat and she has notifications off anyway, but she misses out on people trying to get a hold of her or texting her or telling her there's a party or whatever. So she has like another friend who's in the same, like has to text her. It is really hard to regulate yourself when no one else is regulating themselves and when it's become your mode of communication for organizing things. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I understand it's, it's, I certainly understand that it is inconvenient, but this is the skill of the century. Yeah that the ability to be one of those people who can manage what you know FOMO the fear of missing out mm -hmm. that's the that's the macro skill because it's not going to end right we all feel FOMO we we feel FOMO when it comes to the daily news of what's happening in the news every day what's going on on twitter and uh what you know what what did i miss what breaking news alert we all have to learn this skill to regulate what we call these internal triggers. Look, the, the reason we get distracted, we blame it on the technology. We say it's the pings and dings. Really, really, it's about what's going on inside of us. It's fear, uncertainty, loneliness, boredom. It's feelings that we don't know how to regulate in a healthier manner. So the first step to becoming indistractable is to have a toolkit 
that we can use to better regulate these uncomfortable emotional states. That is a skill that we as adults need to learn. If we find that we get distracted, if you find that you can't get done everything you say you're going to do, I mean, this was definitely my case. This is why I wrote the book in the first place. I would say I was going to exercise, but I didn't. I would say I was going to work on that big project, but I would procrastinate. I would have a to-do list of 100 things, and I'd recycle half of them day after day. And it turned out that the real problem, I kept blaming my technology, it was that I couldn't regulate that uncomfortable sensation that I was feeling in a healthier manner. And that, that is the macro skill. That is what we all need to learn. So how'd you do it? <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's really what the book is about. And so the book okay. is, you know, half the book is about what we can do as individuals. Half the book is what we can do in various environments. For example, in the workplace, how do we raise indistractable kids? How do we have indistractable relationships? But in terms of the very first most important step of how do we start regulating these internal triggers, and by the way, there are four steps, uh, but the first most important step is having tools in our toolkit to when we feel these uncomfortable emotional states, and by the way, this isn't you know something that I just made up. Everything in my book is backed by peer-reviewed studies. It's not you know one of these self-help books that right. oh, it worked for me. Take a take a cold shower at 4 a.m. every morning. Why? Because it worked for me. No, no, no. Everything in the book is backed by peer-reviewed studies. There's 20 pages of of citations, and so it turns out that the, the techniques that work here are uh, some of them I, I take out of what's called acceptance and commitment therapy which is all about acknowledging that sensation, acknowledging that the real reason that I'm doing what I'm doing is this uncomfortable emotional state. And then I'm equipping myself with how to deal with that discomfort by recognizing that is why I am doing what I'm doing. Uh, so for example, you know, as a parent, if you sit down to have dinner with your family and you can't help yourself but check your iPhone, it ain't the iPhone that's doing it to you. It's what is going on inside of you. So one of the first things we can do is to note the sensation, simply acknowledging what it is. I'm feeling bored. I'm feeling stressed. I'm feeling anxious. I'm looking for escape from that discomfort. And then what we want to do is to disarm that, that uncomfortable emotional state by exploring it with curiosity rather than contempt. You see, most people, when it comes to distraction, we fall into two categories. We have the blamers. The blamers say, uh, it's the technology, it's iPhone, it's Facebook, they're doing it to me. Or, you know, you could substitute the chocolate cake or whatever other thing that we don't want to do, we don't want to partake in, whatever temptation you can substitute. It's, it's stuff outside of me. Those are the blamers. Then we have the shamers. The shamers, this is the people like me, I used to, I used to do this, and say, oh, there must be something wrong with me. Maybe I have a short attention span. Uh, you see, I'm lazy. You see, there's something wrong with me. And we shame ourselves. And of course, that makes the problem even worse because the worse we feel, the more likely we are to seek escape from distraction or with another distraction. And so that's why it's so important to not be a blamer, not to be a shamer, but to be a claimer. A claimer acknowledges that, look, this stuff isn't your fault. You didn't invent Instagram. You didn't invent email. You didn't invent that chocolate cake. It's not your fault, but it is your responsibility. So while we can't change how we feel, we can only change how we respond to how we feel. And so there's all kinds of tactics. There's about 30 different tactics we can use to help us escape that uncomfortable emotional state in a healthier manner. Because the, 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 the thing that's, if there's one lesson I want folks to remember, it's that it's important to define what is distraction. So most people think about distraction, they think the opposite of distraction is focus, but it's not focus. The opposite of distraction it's traction. So both actually come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And you'll notice they both end in the same six-letter word, A-C-T-I-O-N. That spells action. So traction is any action 
that pulls you towards what you want to do, things that you do with intent. The opposite of traction is distraction, anything that pulls you away from what you plan to do, anything that is not done with intent. So one of the best things you can do to turn distraction into traction is to make time for it. So you know, one of the things that I see all the time that drives me crazy is that people place these, these pastimes on some kind of moral hierarchy. You on Facebook, you on Instagram, you playing Candy Crush, that's a waste of time. But me watching football for three hours, that's okay. What's the difference? There's no difference. Anything that you plan to do with intent is perfectly fine. So one of the strategies is to make time for traction. So we can do this for ourselves, we can do this with our kids. There's nothing wrong with saying, hey, every day after I finish my homework at seven o'clock after dinner, my kid is gonna play an hour of Fortnite. There's nothing wrong with that. And in fact, we found that when children know that that time is held in their calendar, and don't you dare as a, as a parent interrupt them, if that's what they plan to do with their time, let them do it. As long as it's planned for with intent and they can self-monitor and self-regulate, there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. And it takes their mind off of constantly thinking, when do I check, when do I check, when do I check, when do I go on Facebook, when will I get my chance to play Fortnite? Instead, when you know it's on your calendar, just like for us adults, if you say, look, my evening for eight o'clock I have on my calendar, I'm going to watch Netflix. That's fine, as long as you do it with intent, not on someone else's schedule, not on the tech company's schedule, but on your schedule. That's so helpful because um, I've just been overworking myself lately. I've said yes to too much and I have had no free time. And my husband was kind of needling me because we've been trying to watch The Crown together. And like we had gotten through like half an episode. And I finally had to start saying, okay, you know, on Sunday night at this time, I'm going to sit down no matter what's going on and watch. And once I started actually scheduling that in, I was like, okay, I need to schedule this in like every night because I just got into this this habit of um, just kind of working all the time. Like whenever I wasn't, you know, at dinner or, you know, taking a shower, I was just kind of working and not super productively because I was distracted by the things that were fun. You know, like I wanted to catch 10 minutes of that fun thing on TV and, and check Facebook every time I had 10 seconds. And I've found that scheduling in watching TV with my husband has been like, has really helped me, I was going to say get focus, but has really, I guess, helped me get traction, because then it kind yes. of lets me go to to work and, and focus on the work knowing that I had my fun. That's right. That's right. So one of the mantras I, I, I want folks to remember is that you can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from, right? Mm. How can we call something a distraction if on our calendars is blank white space? And so we have to define how we want to spend our time according to our values. And then when we do that, when we actually say, no, this is how we want to spend our time, now we know the difference between traction and distraction. You can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. So I would argue if you plan time with your husband to watch Netflix, that's traction as long as you plan for it. And if you check email, something that seemingly feels productive as a worky type task, that actually is the distraction because it's mm -hmm. not what you plan to do with your time. So that tactic, and I, I give people tools on how to do this. I'll give you a, a, a tool I built online. It's totally free. You don't have to sign up for anything. You, I'll give it to you so you can put it in the show notes. The idea here is to create what's called a time box calendar. And, and our kids can do this as well. They do it naturally because they're in school most of the day. But for their, for their evenings, it's, it's a technique we can teach them and we can follow ourselves. 
which is to plan out our day. Not so that we're super rigid and we're always doing work, quite the opposite. The idea here is that we plan time for all of the values we have in our life, right? We have time for ourselves. If, if, if exercising is, is one of your values, do you make time for it? If prayer or meditation is, time, is, is, is important to you, is there time on your schedule? If proper sleep is important to you, is that time scheduled? As well as time with your kids, with your spouse, with your church group, whatever the case might be, those things need to be scheduled. And again, this isn't just something I made up. Thousands of studies have shown that this idea, uh, we call it making an implementation intention, has been shown to be a highly effective way to do what you say you're going to do and prevent distraction. I call it time blocking, and I'm so monumentally bad at it. Like, I have <laughs> the best of intentions. Rebecca will tell you, I've been talking for years about my, I, I call my Google Calendar aspirational, because like my entire best lived life is all scheduled out on my Google Calendar, and I can't seem to get myself to stick to those blocks. Yeah, so so where, where do you fall off track? Let's Let's dive in. I'm curious. Usually something happens, like something pops up that I didn't account for, which seems more important than what I had scheduled in. And then I just let everything get off the rails. And then I get overwhelmed. And then I take a nap. And, you know, it, it just, it's, it all spirals out of control. Yeah, perfect. So remember, the first step is to master these internal triggers. So when you, you, you use some words that identify the internal triggers there, I feel, I feel overwhelmed. And then I have to take a nap. You know, that means that there are internal triggers meaning those uncomfortable emotional sensations that you're seeking to escape from. And so that first step has to learn has to be to learn how to deal with those internal triggers. Uh, then we want to make time for traction. The third step that we didn't get to yet is about hacking back the external triggers. So the external triggers are anything in our outside environment that might lead us towards distraction. So of course, it's the pings and dings on your phone. It's also turns out the number one source of distraction for the average American knowledge worker turns out to be 80% of survey respondents say is other people, hmm. right? In, in, in the office environment, turns out the greatest source of distraction, particularly for people who work in open floor plan offices, it's interruption from their colleagues. So there are various tactics we can use to do what I call hack back those external triggers. And then the last step is to prevent distraction with pacts. This is about making what's called a pre-commitment. It's about making some kind of contract with yourself or somebody else. We have different types of pacts. We have what's called an effort pact, where there's some bit of friction to, to getting distracted. So for example, in my life, uh, my wife and I found that we were getting to bed later every night. And so we said we want to get to bed at 10 o'clock. And then, you know, 1030 would roll around 11 o'clock. We were still, you know, online, checking email and social media, whatever. And we weren't going to bed on time. So we used an effort pact. And I went to the hardware store and I bought us an outlet timer. Now, this outlet timer will turn on or off anything you plug into it at a predetermined time of day or night. Well, what do we plug into it? Our internet router. <laughs> so every night at 10 p.m., our internet shuts off. That is hardcore. Right? But it, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a last resort. These packs are what we do after we've done the other three steps. But that's a, an amazing way. Now, could I turn the internet back on? Of course I could. I could unplug the, the, the outlet timer. I could replug in the router. But that takes effort. That takes work. And so the idea here is by putting a bit of effort in between me and something I don't want to do, I become less likely to do it. So that's an example of an effort pact. We can also make what's called a price pact. And then finally, and most importantly, is what we call an identity pact. An identity pact 
is when we have some kind of of moniker, some kind of, uh, of identity that we call ourselves that keeps us on track. And this comes from the psychology of religion, uh, that when someone calls themselves an observant Christian or a devout Muslim or even a vegetarian, that actually makes them much more likely to do what they say they're going to do. So for example, a vegetarian doesn't wake up in the morning and says, hmm, I wonder if I should have some bacon today. No, they are a vegetarian. It's who they are, so they act accordingly. And so this is why my book is titled Indistractable. Because it turns out that we can call ourselves this moniker and therefore act accordingly. And we say, well, that's kind of crazy. How does that work? We've actually been here before. I remember as a kid, I grew up in the early 80s, and I remember in my house, we used to have ashtrays in our living room. My parents didn't smoke, and yet we had ashtrays in our living room. The reason was because back then, when people came over to your house, they just expected to smoke. Mm -hmm. It's just what they did. And I remember when my mom for the first time told one of her friends that took out a pack of cigarettes and said, oh, I'm sorry, we are non-smokers. If you'd like to smoke, please go outside. <gasps> they got so offended. <laughs> this, well, how dare you? And it sounds ridiculous. So anybody who was born after the 1980s doesn't understand this at all because it would seem ridiculous for someone to come into your house and just smoke a cigarette. That would be crazy. But that's what people did back then. It took people like my mother to stand up and say, no, that's not who we are. We are non-smokers. And that is exactly what we need to do today when it comes to distraction of all sorts. We need to identify ourselves as indistractable. We need to start this movement of people who say, look, my time and attention and my life is not controlled by others. I decide how I spend my time and my attention and my life. I am indistractable. So I need to start calling myself a highly organized person and then work towards that. No, call yeah. yourself indistractable. <laughs> because high, highly organized person, if you're not, it actually can backfire. So it turns out when people don't believe what they tell themselves, then it actually backfires because it reinforces a lie. What you want to do is to call yourself indistractable because indistractable is a made-up term. I made up the word, and I can get to define it. <laughs> and what it means to be indistractable is it doesn't mean you never get distracted. It means you strive to do what you say you're going to do. It's, it means you're the kind of person who strives to live with personal integrity. Now, the key word being strive. We're not, we're not perfect. The idea here is that we strive to keep our word to ourselves as well as others. Oh, I need to read this book because what you're saying really speaks to me. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I hope, I hope you enjoy it. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, well, thank you for joining us today. This was such a crazy, I'm sure more in-depth than you were even planning on conversation. Well, thank um, you for, for, you know, letting me work out my own personal issues on I the know. episode. Send, send Amy a bill. We should do another, you know, we should do another one of these in, in a few months after you get a chance to implement the tactics. Cause I, you know, what took me so long in writing this book was, was sorting out the wheat from the chaff, the, the, the crappy stuff that people think is true, but actually doesn't really work. The studies don't support. And just fundamentally looking at these four basic steps. And when you use them in concert, it's life-changing. It certainly has been for my life. And I'd love to, to check back in in a few months and see how it's affected your life. Oh, that'd be fantastic. Oh, I like it. Holding Amy accountable. <laughs> okay, great. All right. So how about this? Why don't I check in in the spring and we'll have another conversation and see how it went. Oh, that's awesome. The pressure's on, but good pressure. Thank you so much, Nir. We'll put posts to everything, to the book and to your blog and everything on our show page. And, you know, we're just so happy. I think parents are really going to find this super helpful for their kids and themselves. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank Thanks. you. Bye. And we will be right back with our Bites of the Week. We are back with our Bites of the Week. Amy, what do you have? All right. I've got a fun video. 
Um, it's the trailer for the In the Heights movie, which is coming out in, um, I don't know, sometime in 2020, um, spring maybe. And it stars Anthony Ramos from um, Hamilton. And was he in the, I think he was in the original Broadway production of In the Heights, but he's, he's, he's yeah. playing the role that Lin-Manuel Mar- Lin- Miranda played in the Broadway musical. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's like the biggest regret of my life. My, a friend of mine was actually in the pit for the original cast of In the Heights, and I didn't go see it. And it's like my hugest regret because it was amazing. And I don't know, I was like wrapped up in kids stuff at that time. Right. I was like, Broadway musical, I can't, I don't have time. Um, but yeah, the trailer looks absolutely amazing. I'm looking forward to this movie so much. So just watch the trailer. It's like an instant mood booster. It's, yeah, it's fantastic. So good. You know what's so funny about In the Heights is that I think for people who only know Hamilton, when they when you listen to In the Heights, you see the similarities. Yes. Huge musical similarities. I think people are very um surprised. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's because like like his writing style, you know, written by yep. the same guy. It's just very similar, you know, vastly different topic and different, you know. Yep. Um, it, different people. Oh, actually, a lot of the same people. Not a lot all the same, of the people. same people. Um, very loyal to his people. Yes, very, very loyal. Um, so yeah, just watch it. It's so good. Yeah, that's awesome. I can't wait for that. Um, also authentically filmed in New York, so no like weird Toronto pretending to be New York. Was it? Which <laughs> is so annoying. <laughs> um, so my bite this week is something you can binge on a weekend, like a bad stormy midnight weekend um you know like one of those weekends where you just never get out of bed well it's watchmen Hmm. from hb on hbo and it's i have to tell you i hate marvel movies i don't care if people come at me for this i feel like the first two maybe were good and then it's just the most tired thing in the entire world Hmm. um they're just the same over and over everything marvel does i feel like is the same over and over this is not (laughs) this is so good this is the updated comic which i'm not familiar with the comics i'm not going to pretend to be um but they make it much more i guess they take a lot of the subtext that's in the comic and bring them to the forefront um it's just it's dark it is creepy (laughs) um it's smart the acting is just unbelievable um and you know it's the team that brought you lost so um if so lost don't expect a great wrap-up ending well i also just expect a lot of like clues and easter eggs and complicated things and sort of things that are you know not of this world the time you know the time periods go back and forth um it interweaves a lot of true racial history in this country um and then it takes place in sort of an alternate universe history uh, it's it's very complicated. It's so good. Um, I highly recommend reading Emily Nussbaum's review of it in The New Yorker, which is how I ended up deciding to re- to watch it because I was oh, like, I eh, I don't like it, but I love her. And she did such an incredible dissection without giving anything away, um, but actually gave enough backstory that I was like, okay, now I think I'll understand it. Um, I highly recommend it. You could 100% watch it with your teenager on a wintry, yucky weekend of which you know there will be many in january and february and march so take huh. advantage my husband loves it maybe i need to catch up and join him 
it's so funny. My husband couldn't, he just didn't like it. And I think he didn't, didn't have the patience for it. Like it's slow and it's complicated. Um, but I've heard, I'm only on the third episode. I've heard by episode five, it just gets so good that like you are like, okay, now I'm in it. Like I'm in it for the long haul. Hmm. Um, so I'm very excited and I purposely have not read any spoilers whatsoever, even though there are like so many giant think pieces out about it right now. Um, even like, you know, in the New York times, like not just on like AV club, you know? Right. So that's my bite of the week is Watchmen. If you haven't already watched it, you should. Um, and that is it. That is our show for today. You can find everything we talked about, including links to Niriel's book on our show page at parentingbites.com. You can Give us comments, give us feedback at facebook.com slash parentingbytes. Of course, wherever you listen to us, whether it's Spotify or Apple Podcasts or whatever app you use, please rate, review, subscribe, and share. It's how we build our audience, and we love to have a bigger and bigger audience and meet more and more parents. And if you have, of course, any thoughts to share with us, please, you can message us on Facebook or private message us as well. Until next week. Happy parenting. Bye. Bye. Hey, this is our Parenting Bites disclaimer. Everything we talk about on the show is our own opinion. Any products we recommend, it's our own personal recommendation for entertainment purposes only. If you buy something through our affiliate links or you just happen to buy or see or read or watch something that we've recommended, it's at your own risk.